Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. Well, good morning, everybody. So glad that you're joining us here. Good morning to all of you watching up in Port Perry this morning, and good evening to everyone in Bowmanville and to anyone watching us in and around the world. You're most welcome to this Easter season. One of the most uh, favorite times the, uh, that I have every two weeks is Garbage Day. I love Garbage Day. You're like, okay, this is not where I expected after Billy Graham. I know. But I really do enjoy it. I love going into my house and removing garbage and putting it on the street. I like taking the recycling out, as we talked about with my wife, in a proper order. I'm still right. And also taking also the compost out. I love doing it because I do it early in the morning. It's all out there. And then I leave and these magic fairies come when I'm not here. And it all disappears. Now, they don't put the blue bins back nicely. They have an attitude issue. I know what's going on there. But other than that... Other than that, I am just so thankful. And then I come home and I'm free and it's like spring cleaning every two weeks and all this burden is gone. And then I go in my garage and I start producing garbage just like you do immediately again. Now I want that image to be burned not only in your mind this morning, but for this whole Easter week. Because I want you to imagine that on that Tuesday morning or whenever your day is for pickup, there's a doorbell that goes off early in the morning and you open and there stands one of those garbage fairies. And he looks at you and says, look behind me. And behind you, to your shock, to your horror, even the smell is overwhelming. Every piece of garbage you have ever produced in your whole life is behind him. And he says, oh, we've magically kept this for you your whole life. There's your first diaper right there and, and gum. Every piece of toilet paper, everything you have produced and your family has produced over a lifetime is sitting behind, standing behind this man by the ton. And not only that, all your recycling and magically they also have kept all your compost since you were born. And the garbage man says to you, by the way, this is your responsibility you have produced this and your family has produced this and you have 24 hours actually to clean this up and there are no dumps available and if you do not clean this up, the police will be here by tomorrow. And not only that, oh, by the way, here's a bill. Uh, this is from the earth. This is how much damage you have done to the earth and you also need to pay this off. You have a great day now. God bless. This idea of out of sight, out of mind is not true. I don't think about the garbage I have produced or the recycling because it goes away. But we know that the earth is literally in crisis at this moment because we are producing too much harmful garbage, which is killing our planet. But out of sight, out of mind says, but I don't need to worry about that. Well, on a much more significant level, the Bible says that God knows everything. And God does not have the capacity to forget. And it says that every single one of us on a much more serious level have broken his law. We have sinned against ourselves, others, and God. And just because we cannot remember it all, he remembers it all. And at the end of time, we will stand before God and we will be accountable for every single piece of spiritual garbage we have produced, whether we remember it or not. Now, if that was the end of the story, we'd all be in trouble. But that's not the end of the story. To understand God's issue to our great garbage problem, to understand God's great answer to our sin problem, to fully understand Easter, to get it, to really be genuinely involved next weekend and excited, all of us, skeptics, seekers, 
brand new Christians and long-term followers of Jesus, every single one of us at all our sites needs to go back to a time so long ago where a Jewish holiday was begun called Yom Kippur. This was and is still today celebrated by the Jewish community, and it is called the annual Day of Atonement. It was something like a spiritual spring cleaning. Every six months after Passover, the community would do this. Now, the word atonement is key, and if you're taking notes, this is incredibly important. Atonement means not to cover up something, but to cover something over. It means reparation. It means amend, compensation, penalty, and payment for a wrong or an injury or damage that you have done. It is actually paying the price for something you have already done. Now, in one sense, Israel did not look forward to the coming of this day. Unlike the other Jewish holidays, the Day of Atonement was not a festive event. It was marked by national rep uh, repentance and mourning, fasting, admitting sin, turning from sin. Imagine if we had a holiday once a year about going to the dentist. It was called Dentist Day. And we'd all be so excited. It's Dentist Day. Let's celebrate. And we've all got cavities. And hooray, let's go because we're going to go and they're going to work on our teeth. And we all love when that happens. Love that sound, right? But what's amazing is imagine if Dentist Day was mandatory and it was mandatory by God and we go and say, well, yes, I do have cavities and yes, I do need a root canal and I'm not going to cover it over, uh, cover it up. I need something to cover it over. I need someone to go in and, and genuinely deal with the issue. That is what this is. So one day a year, God would meet his chosen people, the Jews, and all the sin they had committed over this year would be dealt with. Now, before we get to this very ancient sort of odd act, which we're not used to, we need to ask, where did this take place? Well, to understand that, you need to go to the second book of the Bible in Exodus 41, and it says that God spoke to Moses, and he says, you are to set up a tabernacle, the tent of meeting. Now, the word tabernacle in Hebrew means to abide or dwell. In other words, this tent, this large tent, is the place where God decides to dwell among his people, and tent of meeting is its function. This is where God meets with his people, speaks to his people, speaks to their leaders. Now, years later, the tabernacle is replaced by the temple, but all the basic structures remain the same. So, I'd love you, if you have a Bible physically or virtually this morning, to turn to your most exciting book, the book that you all read devotionally every single day, the book of Leviticus. Would you turn there today? Leviticus 16. The Day of Atonement. It says in Leviticus 16.1 these words, that God spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron who died when they approached God. And God said to Moses, you tell your brother Aaron that he is not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark or else he will die too. For I, God, will appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. So, first of all, we enter into this very, very terrible moment. We see how serious things are. Aaron's two sons walked into God's very presence, his holy, consuming, perfect presence, without appropriate ritual and covering or support, and they are struck down dead. Now, everyone leaning close, because this matters. Both of these young men were part of God's people. Both of these men were part of God's personal people. Both of them weren't just part of God's people. They were actual priests. And so here's the point we already begin to see as we prepare for Easter. If being good enough or religious enough is the ticket to go into God's presence, they more than any of us here today should be fine. And yet they walked into their creator's presence as Jews, part of the people of God, and as legitimized priests by God, and they're still struck 
down dead. Why? God is holy. Now, holy in two ways. God is holy other, that is, he is not of us, and he is holy, that is, he is without sin. Literally, the DNA of God cannot stand sin. The Bible says that God hates sin, and sin cannot be in his presence because he is literal perfection. It's like when you light a candle in a dark room, darkness begins to dissipate because darkness cannot overcome light, and that's the same with God. And so this brings us back to actually all of our stories, all the way back at the beginning in the Garden of Eden. God did this. The Lord God made all types of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. But in the middle of the garden, there was the tree of life and there was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God spoke to Adam and commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in this garden you want, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you shall certainly, what's the word? Die. So now we have this amazing thing, the best buffet ever produced in history. Creation is right, Adam and Eve are there. Have you ever mused, have you ever wondered, have you ever struggled out loud, Christian or not, why in the world would God place the temptation there in the first place? Is this like some terrible cosmic setup? Is he some divine dictator? Is God a jerk trying to tempt us by giving us options we can't handle? Is he a cruel, abusive father wanting his children to screw up so he can yell at us? Is he an out-of-control coach testing to see how strong we are and yelling from the sidelines and mocking us and beating us down when we cannot meet his standards? No. See, we are made in the image of God as humans. And so choice is not optional. It is a must. Choice affirms us, choice reflects us, choice shows who God is and who we are. Without choice, we would not be human, we would be robot or animal, but we instinctually know we are more than instinct. So we had choice. Life or death, relationship or rebellion, ongoing salvation through the tree of life or sin. And the story, of course, we know is they chose and we chose, we sinned, we fell, and death entered the picture. And now you know why Adam and Eve had to be removed from the garden because if they stayed in the garden, they would die in that moment because God's presence was there and sin and touched them. Romans 6.23, Paul summarizes the whole schmazel for the wages, the penalty, the consequences of sin is death. So back to the foolish tragedy that took place so long later. The two sons are now dead, and God actually comes to Moses and says, Moses, you need to actually go talk to your brother Aaron, who's the high priest, and tell him you just cannot walk into your creator's presence without covering or help. You've known that since Eden. Tell your brother that he is not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place, behind the curtain, in front of the atonement cover, or he will die, for I will appear in a cloud over that atonement cover. I want you to feel the gravity of this today. The very physical presence of God himself is found in what we call the Holy of Holies in the form of a cloud. Now, I've taught this a hundred times before. Let me teach it again. This is called the Shekinah glory of God, the dwelling presence of God. Though God is omniscient and omnipresent, he chooses to become palpable, close in, come and be revealed in part. And we have to get our view of the cloud right because it matters. When I think about clouds, I think about snuggly ads and I think about puffy, safe, large cotton balls. I think about me hanging out with my kids in a field, looking up in the sky, trying to find animals in the clouds. No, no, this is not that type of cloud. The Bible says in multiple encounters, this cloud is full of God's glory. There is light shining out of the cloud. There is lightning intersecting in and through the cloud. There is power and there is living pillar of fire in the middle of it. 
This is not a cloud. This isn't fog that you sort of can walk through. You can't fly through this. You'd be stopped like concrete. This cloud is pulsing with life, and there is fire there. So you have God's literal, holy, all-consuming, uncreated presence in a space over what we call the Ark of the Covenant. And then you have one man, a high priest. He's only allowed to enter the space, no one else, and he's only allowed to enter once on the day of atonement. The high priest was Israel's divinely appointed representative. Bone of their bone, flesh of their flesh. He was their brother, their kin. He was among them, yet by calling beyond them, he's their leader in worship. He's their only mediator. He's their only stand-in. But what's amazing is if you read all the odd parts of the Old Testament, which all of us need to, you will suddenly find out that he's not doing this in his own name, but in their name. He was actually going to stand before the creator of heaven and earth. And and how do we know he's doing this in their name? Because of what he was wearing. The high priest wore something called an ephanod, a breastplate made of gold and purple and blue and scarlet yarn and finely twisted linen. And it was a covering full of precious stones like emerald and turquoise and amethyst and chrysolite. Exodus 28.1 says there are to be 12 stones. One for each of the names of the sons of Israel, each engraved like a seal with the name of one of the 12 tribes. So so this one man comes before God and he is literally physically wearing the names of God's people as he walks in. And the process begins like this in verse 7. He is to take two goats. Okay, we're definitely not in the suburbs anymore. (laughs) And present them before God at the entrance of the tent of meeting. He is to cast lots over the two goats, one for the Lord and one will become a scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it as a sin offering. But the goat chosen by lot as scapegoat shall be presented alive before God to be used for making atonement by sending it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. Now, I want you to remember these goats for a moment. We're not going to deal with them yet, but something else happens before we deal with the goats. Aaron, the high priest, has to go face God first, and he has to deal with his family sin, his own garbage pile, and his family garbage pile before he can deal with anyone else's. So he has to deal with his own brokenness and sin. So it says in verse 11 that Aaron is to take a bull for his own sin offering to make an atonement for himself and his whole family, and he is to slaughter the bull for his own sin offering. So the first step to dealing with everyone's sin was dealing with his own stuff, his own sin. By the way, there's a principle there. And all the priests at this time were within Aaron's extended family, So if they chose not to deal with their own stuff, they couldn't mediate for everyone else and everyone would suffer. So to be covered, you need to do this first. Now, by the way, I know that this weird thing called blood and sacrifice is incredibly foreign to us. And we who live in a large urban center who did not even grow up on farms, we don't even know how our meat gets to our table anymore. But let me explain to you what it meant to the Jews and to God. Why blood? Why death? Because blood is symbolizes and is for all living things life. Life covers death and life covers sin and actually the offense is so great a life needs to be given for a life, atonement. Well, the next step is the scariest moment. The high priest, Aaron, is about to enter into the environment where both of his sons have just died. It's fraught with danger, for a human is now coming into the very presence of their creator. And it says in verse 12 that he is to take a censer full of burning coals from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground fragrant incense and take them before the curtain, behind the curtain. Now I want to show you this picture. Here's picture one. You can see this. This is what the tent used to look like. 
And you can see that there's this veil there. And behind the veil is the Ark of the Covenant. There's God's presence. But there is this veil blocking that experience. Now that curtain, the veil, stands before the high priest. This is the physical barrier between God and all people. The veil actually screens the Holy of Holies. It is the literal boundary between earth and heaven. And later we know as the temple's built, the curtain is much larger than this. It says in Second Chronicles, the curtain also was made of blue and purple and crimson yarn and fine linen, the same things that are on the high priest's chest. And there is cherubim, angels, sewn into the whole thing. By the time of Jesus' life, Jewish literature reveals how much larger the veil is. It's 60 feet long, it's 30 feet wide, and it's the thickness of the palm of your hand. This rug was this thick. Can you imagine that? It was made up of 72 individual squares that were joined together. It was so uh, heavy, it said that 300 priests were needed to clean it or put it up. On one side, you have angels. On the other side, you have the whole image of the universe, This was such a valuable piece of fabric that when Jerusalem was sacked in 70 AD by Titus, the Roman general, they stole this and kept it because it was so precious. And so now Aaron is about to enter the holy place. And you can see in this picture here, this rendition, the high priest now enters in. And the high priest, can you put that picture up? The high priest enters in, and now he's got this burning coal and, uh, coals and incense. And from the outside, he would pass into the living presence of God through the curtain, into the Holy of Holies, where God's physical presence was just above the Ark of the Covenant. So he walks in, and then this is what he's called to do in verse 13. He is to put the incense on the fire before God, and the smoke of the incense will conceal the atonement cover above the testimony so that he will not die. I want you to watch this. Even after he has sacrificed a bull, Aaron is still in danger. Now, the purpose of the smoke was to create another curtain or veil which would prevent the high priest by mistake gazing upon the personal presence of God. And by the way, this is the key that everyone needs to learn today. Ever since Eden, there must be a physical, spiritual barrier between the holy creator of heaven and earth and any human being, even those that love him or know him, because we've all been touched by what? Sin. So the priest has now crossed the point of no return. He is now fully immersed in his creator's presence, in the place where heaven and earth touch. And the only thing between him and God, fire, light, lightning, and cloud, is a curtain of thin-veiled smoke. And at this moment, he does something incredibly odd for us. He's to take some of the bull's blood, God says, and with his finger sprinkle it on the front of the atonement cover, and then he shall sprinkle some of it with his finger seven times before the atonement cover. So now in front of him is the Ark of the Covenant. This is chest or or box made from Acadia wood. It's overlaid with gold. There's two angels on each side of it. Why? Because God is the king of angels. Remember, the curtain is covered with pictures of angels, and the Ark of the Covenant had two functions. Number one, between those angels, this is what we call the atonement cover or the mercy seat. This was the throne of the invisible God's presence on earth, and this is where he sprinkles the blood. The blood is sprinkled seven times because it symbolizes perfection. Inside the chest is the Ten Commandments, a remember of the wedding vows between God and his people. Now at this point he goes in and he sprinkles this blood to deal with his own sin, And then he leaves God's presence to go deal with Israel's sin, and he comes back to the goats. Verse 15, then he shall slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people and take its blood behind the curtain and do with it as he did with the uh, the bull's blood. He shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover and in front of it. So now another animal is slaughtered for the sins of a nation, 
And the high priest goes back into God's very presence where the holy ark is found and God's literal presence is there and he deals with everyone's sin. It says in verse 16, in this way he shall make atonement, covering. He shall pay the price for the most holy place because of the uncleanliness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins had been. He's to do the same for the tent of meeting, which is among them in the midst of their uncleanliness. Not only do these two symbolic acts deal with their sin, it actually makes the tent pure because God is living among an unholy people. And then Paul, then, sorry, God says this thing that is so critical to understanding Easter. No one, he says, is to be in the tent of meeting from the time Aaron goes in to make atonement in the most holy place until he comes out, having made atonement for himself, his family, and the whole community of Israel. And now, catch this. The high priest is the only one allowed to go in. One mediator, one way, one representative, one path, one door, one intercessor, one gate, one road, not many. So Aaron has now stood in the gap for himself, his family, and all of Israel. And then the last two most amazing and odd acts take place. It says in verse 18, then he will come out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. He shall take some of the bull's blood and the goat's blood and put it on the four horns of the altar and he shall sprinkle some of the blood with it seven times to cleanse it and consecrate it for the, from the uncleanliness of the Israelites. So there's a large altar outside of the Holy of Holies which everyone probably could see if it's open and the blood of bull and goat are mixed together. Why? Because everyone needs an intercessor. Everyone needs a savior. Everyone is on a level ground. So priests and people both actually need to be made right. And then we come to the last act. Aaron, when he's finished making atonement for the most holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall bring forward that live goat. And he is to lay both of his hands on the head of that live goat. And he is to confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all of their sins. And put that on the goat's head and he shall send the goat away into the desert in the care of a man appointed for such a task. In this moment, Every lustful thought, every murder, every moment of anger, every place where mothers and fathers were not honored by their children, every time someone's heart went to murder or steal or covet or worship another god, all of that is placed on the head of this goat and Israel's sins are transferred, laid upon this, an, uh, this animal and thus we have the new idea for the first time called scapegoating. One takes the blame, even the penalty for someone else's stuff, though they didn't do it. Now there's more. If you notice in the passage, one man has the job to take the goat to its death. Can you imagine if you got that job? Hey, we believe in gift-based ministry and you. Congratulations. You get to take living death out to the desert. We're so glad for you. Here's the leash. Don't look very much and walk quickly, right? Like, so out you go. And this man takes the scapegoat into the desert to a solitary place. And it says in verse 22, the goat will carry on itself all the sins to a solitary place, and the man shall release it in the desert. And this place, which is cut off, a deep valley, a cave, no chance of return, this is where the goat will die. Now, both animals preserve the Old Testament concept of sin being taken away by another other than the sinner. Now, only when you look at tents and temples and clouds and blood and curtain and holy smoke. Oh, by the way, that's where we get the expression holy smoke from, just so you know. And high priests, suddenly do you walk into Good Friday and Easter in a brand new way. Why? Because Jesus, who, by the way, is a good Orthodox Jew and the King of the Jews and the Messiah and the Son of God is the ultimate expression of all of this. 
Easter is a declaration that actually it's not just for Jewish people anymore, it's for everybody. Easter is when Jesus decides that the day of the atonement is for us, all humanity. Now, how do we know this? Because as you begin to read through the New Testament, you will begin to understand the profound things that Jesus did. And when you get to Easter next week, your life will be a very different place. Your celebration will go up when you fully understand how big your garbage pile was and how much Jesus has done for you. See, number one, Jesus is our high priest and he stands in for us. Hebrews 4.14 says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who's ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every single way, just like we are, yet he did not sin. And then I love verse 16, because remember, Aaron's sons walked in inappropriately and died. But now because of Jesus, what do we get to do? Let us then approach God's throne of grace with, what's the word? Say it loud together. Confidence. So we can receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Jesus, the ultimate high priest, allows us to walk into holy presence, God himself, without fear. Because he's the one that mediates, prays, stands, covers. See, Jesus is our worship leader. He's our intercessor. He's our divinely appointed representative. And by the way, he's bone of our bone, flesh of our flesh. He's really our brother. He really is human. He really lived among us, yet he is beyond us. See, that's the connection between Christmas and Easter. The incarnation and the resurrection find their meaning in Jesus, the great high priest, who allows us all to come back home. Jesus is our high priest. And we can walk into God's presence without fear. But he isn't just our high priest. Jesus, the Bible declares, emphatically is our sacrifice. He's the one that's killed. By his blood, we are made clean. His blood is sprinkled on the mercy seat of heaven to cover our sins. Here's how Paul put it in Romans 3.25. God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. See, God is the one who chooses the lamb. God is the one who sends Jesus in our place. And Jesus willingly does it because he loves you. He wasn't forced to do this. This isn't cosmic child abuse. He loves you. He willingly claimed to be our sacrifice. Here's how his best friend put it in 1 John 4.10. And this is love. Not that we love God. The garbage pile was so high you couldn't even see God. That he loved us. That he sent his son to be an atonement for our sins. See, Jesus is not just our sacrifice. He's our perfect and permanent sacrifice. It doesn't need to be done yearly, year after year. It's only done once. Remember, the priest sprinkled how many times? Seven to symbolize perfection. But Jesus doesn't need to sprinkle anything seven times. Jesus was perfect, is perfect, and always will be perfect. He never sinned once. That's why when he cried out on the cross on Good Friday, it is finished, it really was finished because he is the perfect perpetual sacrifice. Right? In Hebrews 10.3, it reads like this. Those sacrifices are annual reminders of our sins because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away our sin. But we have been made holy positionally through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. It's finished. It's done. No more sacrifices needed. So Jesus is our high priest and Jesus is our sacrifice He's our blood sacrifice, and he's our permanent sacrifice. He's our forever sacrifice, but he's not just those things. He also even takes the function of scapegoat. Jesus took our sin. He had all of our sin and every sin ever committed by any human being placed on himself, even though he did not sin. 
And even more shocking, if you know the story of Good Friday, is Jesus, it says, is taken outside of the city by others to a rocky place to die. Jesus is actually literally imitating the scapegoat experience by being removed from the community outside the city walls to Golgotha in a desert-like rocky place to die in our place. And when he was dying, everything that we've ever done that is wicked, all the garbage and all the recycling and all that stuff that is sinful is placed on him. And that is why Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us so that in Jesus we might become what? The righteousness of God. So Jesus fulfills to the letter the scapegoat because here's what happens at the end of Good Friday. He's not only let out, it says that he is fully isolated and alone and dies. Why? What does he say in Matthew? My God, my God, what? Why have you forsaken me? See, Jesus is our literal high priest at this moment if you're a Christian. And he's not only our sacrifice, he's our perfect, perpetual sacrifice, and he's our scapegoat, but it's more than that. See, Jesus has become the permanent incense barrier between us and God the Father. He stands between us and pure holiness. He covers us. He shields us. When God the Father looks at you today, if you're a Christian, he sees you through Jesus. Like I've said before, Jesus is the ultimate Brita system filter. All the impurities are taken out because of Jesus. That's why Paul said in 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is only one God and there's only one mediator between God and man and that's the man Jesus Christ. He is the permanent incense barrier that always protects us from something that we cannot handle. So he's high priest and he's sacrificed and he's scapegoat and he's incense barrier but it even gets better. See you understand why you need to read your Old Testament now? You'll never understand the New Testament without the Old Testament. Jesus's body we are told in the New Testament becomes the curtain that we actually walk through to get to God himself. Hebrews 10, 19, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, since we have confidence, there it is again, since we have confidence to enter where? The most holy place, the holy of holies, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain. That is Jesus' body. And since we have a great high priest now over the household of God, let us as Christians draw near to God with sincere hearts and with full assurance that faith brings. Ready? Having our hearts, what? Sprinkled to be cleansed from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Jesus is the new permanent ongoing curtain we walk through. And I want you to hear this. Brothers and sisters, if you're a Christian here today, you have been cleansed. You are free of sin. You are no longer viewed as sinner but saint. And the Bible is clear. You no longer have an eternal guilty conscience because Jesus has paid the penalty. When you are accused by the devil of your heart, you remind them of your great high priest and what he has done. This is so at the epicenter of Easter. And what is the result of the Day of Atonement? The result of the Day of Atonement is actually happening in this room and other rooms all around the world right now. Jesus, by God the Father's will, through the power of the Spirit, created a new holy nation made up of people from all around the world who now all are preceded, the culmination of Leviticus 16 and the culmination of Good Friday and the culmination of Easter is actually found in the new heavens and the new earth. Because if you read the end of the story, it says in Revelation 5, 6, and then I saw a lamb looking like it had been slain. There's a literal lamb bleeding out. And where is it? It's standing in the center of God's throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. And they sang a new song. You're worthy to take the scroll and to open it sealed because you were slain 
and by your blood you have purchased people for God from every tribe and every language and every people and every nation and you have made them to be a kingdom and look now and we're all now priests and we get to serve God and we will reign on the earth forever and ever. That's the end of the story. Now, why am I doing this? Why are we talking about bulls and goats and blood? And all? Because to get Easter, to be ready for Easter, to understand Easter. See, many of us in this church need to be re-evangelized to what we already believe. And others of you need to accept it for the first time. To any person within the sound of my voice today who is a skeptic, a seeker, you call yourself spiritual, maybe you're a Muslim, a Hindu, maybe you're part of another faith, maybe you claim no faith at all, maybe you have the title Christian, you do church because it's the right thing to do or it's part of your ethnic background or your grandma's a Christian, so you're a Christian, stop and listen. A week before Easter, I give you this, not out of anger, not doing this, but I give this to you. The Bible pulls no punches. In the end of time, every human being will face God personally and give an account for their own garbage pile. And the question that God has actually brought you to this podcast or this site or another site to hear is this. Will you be like Aaron, fully covered, or will you be like his sons with no covering? See, the end of time goes down like this. Believe it or not, this is what's going to happen. Jesus said this in Matthew 25, 31, when the Son of Man comes in all of his glory... With all the angels with him, he will sit on the throne, on his throne in heavenly glory. And all the nations, every human being, will gather before him. And he will start separating the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on the right and the goats on the left. Now I want you again to have that image in your mind that I started with. That the doorbell rings and all the garbage that you had forgotten about is now present. God knows everything. Everything you and I, we have done in secret, public and private, all the things we know were wrong, we don't think are wrong, and are wrong, he knows it all, and he will call us on the carpet to account. And in that moment, so many people in Canada believe if you're just kind enough, good enough, and you let people in front of you in a Tim Hortons line, that's going to make it. Are you joking me? You really think before God, your creator, the creator of heaven and earth, who has no sin, that you think you're going to be able to balance the scales because you've been better? Have you looked at your mind lately, your internet searches lately, your own heart lately? Have you looked at mine? Religion doesn't have the power to cover this. Good works isn't strong enough. That is why the Christian message is so unbelievably good and powerful and beautiful where it says, but God has provided atonement, covering, payment. He sent someone else to step in. In other words, here's what the Christian faith believes. We all need a savior. We all need a high priest. We all need a sacrifice. We all need a scapegoat. We need a permanent incense barrier. We need a curtain so we can actually recover what we chose to lose in Eden so long ago. And Jesus comes and says, oh, I'm that person and I love you. I'd like you to participate in this. By the way, one of the most offensive things Jesus ever said in a multicultural, pluralistic world is John 14, 6. Well, I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one gets to God except through me. Uh, Islam, no. Buddhism, no. Wiccan, no. Spirituality, no. Philosophy, no. Science, no. Fill in all the blanks, no, no, no. Jesus or nothing. That's what Jesus says. How does he have the right to say that? Oh, because he's the only one. 
that died and rose from the dead. He's the only one that paid the penalty. He's the only one that covered all the garbage and had it placed on him and actually took it to a dump that we can never find. He's actually the one who's done all the work. No one else came back from the dead. No one else took the wrath of God. No one else took our sin. No one else has lived a perfect life, but Jesus has. So that's why he says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. You come through me, the curtain. You come through me, the high priest, and you can have eternal life, and you can meet God the Father as friend and father now, not as enemy or adversary. So, this is what, if you are right now are incredibly angry at me, don't worry, it's my boss who's talking to you, not me. Or if you're unbelievably heart spent, listen to this. Here's what Paul said in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Ah, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God has brought you here to this moment, this day, wherever you are listening in the world, any country, and this is what he's saying, now is the time to embrace my son. For if you do it, you will have life and eternal life, forgiveness, hope, and redemption. Would everyone bow their head at all our sites, wherever you are in the world, would you bow your head? And if you are the seeker, the skeptic, the Christian by name only, and you have never said yes, God is now like a good dad inviting you home. But you have to pray this prayer and you need to admit what you really are. Just say, dear God, I am a sinner. The garbage pile is too high and the bill is too costly and I'm going to die like everyone else. And when I face you, I can't buy you off or con you or be religious enough. Have mercy on me, a sinner. If this is what this guy is saying is true, then I ask Jesus Christ to be my Savior. Jesus, hear my first real prayer to you. Be my high priest. Be my sacrifice. Be my scapegoat. Become that permanent incense barrier. Be that curtain so I, know, I can know God as Father and friend. Make me clean in a way I can't clean myself. I accept your work on the cross. I actually believe you physically rose from the dead and now I want to have life and purpose and I actually want eternal life. Would you give me the gift of salvation and atonement in Jesus' name? And we all said together, amen. Many of us who are here today are watching, listen, we, we've crossed the line of faith. We're followers of Jesus. And you're like, well, John, other than maybe intellectually stretching a little bit to understand a little bit deeper the roots of my faith, what, what, what do you ask me to take home? Well, here's what I want to take home this week. As we, it's Palm Sunday today, as we enter into Holy Week, I'm going to ask this whole church to really become incredibly thankful to Jesus in the next seven days. You know, we sing about grace in church all the time. We say the word grace all the time, but... Now we've seen what it really costs. How thankful are we? You know, last week we talked about how we as Christians don't need to fear the journey, fear the journey towards death or death itself because of the physical resurrection of Jesus. And actually, because of his physical resurrection, we will have physical resurrection. But most of us have never considered that even when we pray over a meal, that we'd be struck dead if Jesus wasn't covering us in the end. We've never really thought about that when we die and we face God, it's not going to be a moment of terror at all. When we die, we are going to meet God and it will be joy and love and healing because of the work of Jesus and the love of God the Father and the presence of the Spirit. So as we prepare for Easter next week, here's my request. Let your heart be warm to a story that you've known far too long and maybe it's become cold to you. Ask the Holy Spirit 
to warm you back to this incredible moment. Be moved on Good Friday and on Easter to say a real thank you to Jesus. Maybe be moved to tears or raise your hands or cover your face or kneel. Maybe shout out thank you or sit silently. But every one of us who loves Jesus needs to say thank you. We need to come on Friday, but especially on Sunday. As thousands of people gather in our church and then from other churches, they gather in their communities. But when we gather in ours, well, I mean, we really need to come to celebrate, to profoundly say to Jesus, our high priest, thank you. To acknowledge how big the pile was and how much he's done. But you know why else we need to get ready to party? <laughs> because next week, hundreds and hundreds of people are going to join us in this church who don't know Jesus yet. Right? Neighbors, friends, enemies. People are going to walk in off the street. People are going to walk in the church and say, I don't even know why I'm here. Suddenly I just showed up. <laughs> Divine conspiracy. I love it. Uh, right? It's going to happen. And all these people are going to come in. And they're going to be wondering if this is a show. They're going to be wondering if this is a cult. They're going to be wondering if there's any relevance in this place. And the very first thing I just want to instruct you as a family to do is this. You come next week expectant that Jesus is going to be in the house. You come knowing all this is true. And you come ready to celebrate the risen Jesus Christ by his spirit. You come ready. Even at 8.30 in the morning, if you're at this site, you come ready. Because all those seekers and skeptics are going to watch us and wonder if what we have is true. And here's the promise of Scripture. Jesus is alive. Where two or three Christians gather, Jesus is among us. When the Word of God is opened, it is powerful. When the gospel is get given, the power of God is released. God inhabits the praises of our people, whether everyone's on tune or off tune, irrelevant. He is present. So next Sunday, we gather together to celebrate that death doesn't win. Jesus is physically resurrected from the dead. God really does love us. The payment has been paid. The garbage pile is gone. And we need to literally, physically even demonstrate that we believe this to all those who are going to be joining us. They need to see genuine joy, genuine celebration. And even we who are struggling and hurting still get to praise our God in the midst of it because he is who he is and he does not lie because he's the way and the truth and the life. Amen to that, church. Amen to that. So could we all stand together across all our sites? Let's just take a moment to pray. And then at all our sites, let's respond in song to the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. God, thank you that you are holy, but you're also holy love. Thank you that when we walked away from you in Eden, you came after us. Thank you, Jesus, that you actually chose to come for us. So we together as a church, we celebrate right now. Thank you, Jesus, you're our high priest. Thank you, Jesus, you're our sacrifice. Thank you, Jesus, we don't have to sacrifice anymore. Thank you, we have no more annual reminder of our sins. Thank you, Jesus, you're our scapegoat. Thank you, Jesus, that you're our curtain. Thank you, Jesus, that you're our incense barrier. Thank you, Jesus, that you love us. Thank you, Jesus, we can enter into God the Father's presence literally at this moment 
because of you and have confidence and our guilty conscience is washed away, that we have hope in this life and hope to come. We worship the Father because he sent Jesus. We worship Jesus because he came and died for us. And we worship the Holy Spirit who opened our eyes to see Jesus who allows us to see the Father. All glory be to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in this generation and all generations. We pray this. Amen, amen, amen. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com. Thank you.